Welcome to episode four of the Through the Point podcast. This episode, I interviewed Kara Winger, a three-time Olympian, eight-time national champ, and the U.S. women's record holder with a throw of 66-76. We talk about coronavirus and its impact on her training, her career both in high school, college, and at the international level, and what it's like to be a professional javelin thrower in the United States. Even with all of her accomplishments, Kara is really down-to-earth and kind, and I really enjoyed talking to her and learning more about her story, and I'm sure you guys are going to enjoy that as well. We also talked about making some collaborations in the future, which is something I'm obviously super interested in, so I'll keep you posted as those things develop. Enjoy the episode. here with Kara Winger. I don't know where to start with your accomplishments uh, to introduce you, but we'll go with three-time Olympian, eight-time U.S. champ, uh, and U.S. record holder. Kara, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thrilled to be here. I'm glad to have you too. So I want to start with the timely event. Obviously, this is what everyone's wondering about, the coronavirus. Is that impacting your training at all? And where are you currently training? So just what that, what is that situation like right now? I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is the home of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and the main Olympic training center um, in the whole country. So they're very committed to keeping that open for athletes that live and train here. Um, And I just feel really blessed to see all of the disinfecting that's going on on a daily basis, if not (laughs) twice a day. Um, right now we're actually required to take our temperatures twice a day and then self-report like answering health questions when we arrive on campus. And if we've exhibited any symptoms, we're not allowed to go. We have to stay where we are and call uh, sports med. So it feels really safe and it keeps dreams alive. Um, and then I throw at the Air Force Academy on the north end of town. Um, and the fact that I have a military ID because my coach is, Former Air Force Major Dana Lyon um, means that facility is at this point still uh, accessible to me. Yeah, so you're in a pretty good spot and it's got to feel good, like you said, to know they're disinfecting, taking all those temperatures and taking the precautions that if anyone is even close to having symptoms, you'll be okay. Yeah, and I mean, if there was going to be a place to be to contract the virus like you have you know doctors and medical professionals all around you and a pretty low population of elderly individuals so I feel socially responsible still training Um, if that changes I'll rethink kind of everything that's going on next week um, the last week of March really is um, the first week of a new block for me so if things changed as drastically as they have been for the past week um, and I have to actually stay home uh, I I can work with Jamie Myers, my coach, who writes my programming, and figure that out. Like, I quite enjoy the creativity that comes with training. So this is an extreme example. Right. Yeah, but it could be fun, yeah. <laughs> Have you heard any information about the plans surrounding, I mean, the meets that are going to be important to you going forward? I mean, I don't know if I can get inside scoop or if you're not allowed to say it if you have, but... I can tell you all public information, yeah. Uh, Today, March 17th, um, two, at least two of the Diamond League meets were canceled. Okay. Um, I think Doha and Shanghai. And then there was like another World World Challenge or something in China that also got canceled. Uh, And I think I was 
surprised that it took this long to cancel Chinese meats. Right. Um, but yeah, so far that's the, the major impact. But I was planning to open my season at Tucson Elite on May 23rd. So right And now, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough to tell because I just really don't know if this is going to be like a couple week thing or like I've heard some stuff about going into the summer. So hopefully it doesn't go that far. But yeah, that's definitely uh, definitely interesting and changing rapidly, as you said. Right. And I I feel like I'm a weird I've said this a couple different times. Like I, I'm coming from a place of Olympic privilege in that <clears throat> I've been there. It's amazing. I absolutely have metal goals. But at the same time, in the last year, I've, like, said to tour groups at the Olympic Training Center that, like, I'm so happy with the longevity of my career and everything Mm -hmm. that, especially in the last couple seasons, has happened. Um, That, like, if the Olympics get canceled, that's not necessarily my end-all be-all. Right. Anyway, and... I love it. I want to go. I like I said I have really big goals and I would hurt so much for athletes that haven't had that opportunity for that to change so drastically, but I just want to be the best that I can be, however that looks. Wherever right. that is. Yeah. And as you said, I mean this would be your fourth Olympics, so not that you're saying you don't want to go, but it's definitely the understanding or having a perspective as your career's going on that it's not necessarily all about that, but yeah, going going as hard as you can, I guess. Right. And again, like coming from a place of already being there, like I get that other people's perspective would be totally, totally different. And I respect that too. Like that's the dream of the Olympics is what gets a lot of people through each training day. It's just kind of morphed for me over a lot of years, um, what I go to practice for every day. So, Right. Well, let's keep fingers crossed that it happens and you don't have to worry about that and everyone gets to have their dreams. But uh, I guess we'll just see going forward. So we'll get back to a more positive topic and just get to your background. You're from Vancouver, Washington. Uh, so what was your athletic background like growing up? I did everything that I could possibly do as an athlete. So uh, softball, t-ball, volleyball, soccer, basketball, like all the way through high school. I was a swimmer in the fall, played basketball in the winter, and then um, tried javelin my freshman year for the first time but had done track in eighth grade. So softball until eighth grade, track and field in eighth grade, and then all three sports, like the rest of my high school career. I thought I was going to be a basketball player. Like that's what I had always loved the most. Mm -hmm. Swimming is still the hardest sport I've ever done from just an output, like effort standpoint. Maybe that's because I'm not an endurance athlete, but it was (laughs) insane. And like, those were some of my favorite people in the world on my swim team. So that was a really positive experience for me. Um, But yeah, just played everything possible. That's kind of what I talked about with one of my friends actually the other day, weirdly enough, he's probably going to listen to the podcast once it comes out, that he did high school swim. And I just was like, dude, I don't even know how you can possibly do that. Like the amount of swimming that goes into that. I'm not an endurance athlete at all either. So that was just like mind-blowing even like someone on a jv swim team is like has to put in so much time and effort to do what they have to do so i definitely give them credit for that it's it's an amazing sport i am just still blown away by the times that like olympic caliber swimmers put up because i have some tiny bit of perspective like from high school right yeah and it's still a big part of my training so it's fun to have that base from another sport like it makes me feel like i'm still a well-rounded athlete to be able to get in the pool (laughs) 
and knock out a bunch of laps. But uh, yeah, just removing gravity, having a little bit of dynamic flexibility in the pool is really nice for me. But yeah, multi-sport is the way to go, in <laughs> my opinion, developing as an athlete. When you got or started throwing the javelin your freshman year, how did you get introduced? Was that your idea, someone else's idea? It was someone else's idea. My geometry teacher, Ron Heidenreich, was the head girls track coach. And I had tried track in eighth grade, like I said, but not loved anything. And we didn't have javelin in Washington in middle school, but then it was in the high school system. So he said to me in class, Kara, come out for track. You should be a javelin thrower. Like, I wasn't wow. necessarily going to be a track athlete again. Um, but then when he said javelin, I was like, I've never heard of that. <laughs> Golf sounds really boring, and that was my plan. So I'll try the javelin. And it was really just a way to hang out with my friends and have something, like, fun and relaxed. But then I turned out to be pretty naturally good at it. Yeah, looking at that, I don't know how many years later exactly, but do you ever, like, contact that teacher and just be like, Hey man, thanks. Are you still in touch? Yeah, I actually, um, he'll like send me an email or text message every now and then. Uh, cause one of his younger kid, his son was in my grade actually. So it's really, you know, even more relationship. Cause like now, um, his daughter Janae was only two years older than Landon and I, and now like she has a baby. He's a multiple time grandpa. Like it's just more of a, you know, friendship because he introduced me to this thing that became my life uh and I'm about the same age as his kids so he was like at my high school hall of fame induction ceremony um and we both cried you know and then uh <laughs> I have I'd recently dug up a picture of me hugging him like really awkwardly from the track and he's in the stands at Hayward Field when I made my first Olympic team because That's I'm awesome. from Washington he could be there it's only two hours south Eugene Oregon right. so um he's just he's been an essential part of it like at least from the very beginning but also encouragement along the way and I think that's right fun. yeah did you only do the javelin after you realized you were good or was it all sports still through your senior year I actually went out for the team late my freshman year so I was like 10 days late for the spring season and that's the story um that kind of kick-started like what told me I could be really good was my first meet ever was a JV meet in Oregon. Like in Washington, we only had one field, like one section, there wasn't JV and varsity, but we'd gone down to Oregon for this meet and they had a JV section and I'd never competed before. I had to sit out for a few days because I'd gone out for the team late. So this was like pretty late in the year that I finally got to compete and they were like, well, we don't know what you're going to do, so go over there and throw the javelin. And I threw what would have won the varsity. It was like 97, oh, wow. 97 feet or something like that. <laughs> um, but kind of after that, like either because I'd gone out late for it, it had been Mr. Heidenreich's specific idea for me to throw the javelin, and then I happened to be pretty good at it. That's all I did until like my junior year when I had a couple injuries and I tried other stuff, but I would jump okay. into like a four by one. I even ran the four by four sometimes cause no one wanted to do it and it was the end <laughs> of the meet and I wasn't doing anything else. So I didn't necessarily train for anything else, but I dabbled in other events. 
that's just being an all-around athlete, being able to sub into those relays. So that's good, good balance. Well, and one of my very favorite events to this day, like to watch, is the four hundred hurdles. Oh yeah, just that's... grueling, awful, like <laughs> unbelievable talent in that race. And um, we had the 300 hurdles in high school. So I hurt my hand my senior year and I was like, I'll run the high hurdles or the, sorry, the 300 hurdles because they're lower and I can just like step over them and it'll be fine. But I had uh, one of my really good friends, her mom ran the 400 hurdles in college. And I remember her telling me before that meet, like, you are going to die. (laughs) It's going to be awful. And I was like, whatever, I'll be fine. And then all I remember from crossing the finish line is hearing her laugh at me from the stand. (laughs) Totally brutal, horrendous. I can't imagine another 100 meters going into that race. And yeah, I'm grateful for the well-roundedness. Yeah. Yeah, as if it wasn't hard enough to run that far fast already. It's just adding barriers to it. So, I mean, yeah, I can't even imagine it. I'm not nearly athletic enough to be doing that. So I give you credit for trying that at least. I'm pretty sure I only ran one 300 hurdles race, like my my whole (laughs) brief hurdles career. What was the rest of your uh, experience like competing in high school? As you said, you were pretty good naturally. What did that what was that like, I guess, back in, did you graduate high school in 2004? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's a lot different, I guess, than now. So what was that like? I mean, it's not too old, but just obviously with the progression of the internet and recruiting and things like that, what was that like uh, for your high school experience? It, yeah, it was totally different. Um, I was, I had a giant PR my freshman year at State. Um, and my high school was in 3A. It was a really young high school. So it goes up to 4A in Washington, or it did back then. Um, so my first two state meets were in the 3A division because the school was like still growing. And then the second, my junior and senior year, we were in 4A. So my freshman year, I threw like a 15 foot PR to get second at state as a freshman. And then I won a 3A title my sophomore year um, and two 4A titles like junior and senior year. But my high school PR was like 159.7, like 40. Okay five to 47 meters i'm not totally sure because 50 is like 164 i think so yeah you're probably like 48 mid maybe i don't know maybe that high right like yeah yeah and um that wasn't like my freshman year i still remember like when i finally got to like close to 160 uh, the girl that had won my freshman year threw, like, 166, and then she went to, like, Western Washington to play basketball. Like, she wasn't even going to college to throw the javelin, but I still did not, like, throw as far as her leaving high school. Right. And I remember, like, thinking about that and noticing that and, like, kind of getting down on myself as far as, like, how far I had thrown, but still recognizing the opportunity that I had to go to college. Uh, And I got recruited... Like, I guess heavily, I didn't, I'm not from a family of athletes, so it was hard for me to gauge what that interest should look like mm-hmm. for being an athlete. Like, I didn't really have anyone around me that had experience with recruiting, um, but I went on official visits to University of Washington, Stanford, Missouri, and Purdue. And for me, Purdue had like super friendly people a lot of academic diversity with really good programs kind of all over the school because I had no idea what I wanted to study I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up (laughs) and 
a fabulous coach who ended up being just one of the best fits uh, that there could have ever been for me, plus a training partner that was only a year older than me, um, and a female, and she had gotten third at Big Tens her freshman year, uh, and just just a fabulous academic and javelin-specific environment to walk into. Right. Yeah. But recruiting so was on the phone. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not on social media, like barely on email, you know, maybe Coach Zuderwick um, and the other ones like emailed my mom sometimes, but uh, it was all like landline, home phone situation. <laughs> like I used to go to the gym to run um, before school during swimming season Mm-hmm. to get ready for basketball and uh, I remember that almost every time I would like go to the gym and then come home for breakfast before going to school um, my mom would be like coach Zitterwick called like he'd call me from east coast time in Washington right. like in the morning and I would always miss his calls because I was like on the treadmill at the gym uh, and I think he liked that I feel like that was a, a po- positive for me rather than a negative yeah, as long as you're not sleeping in and you're getting the work in, then I guess he's probably probably pretty pumped about that. So your senior year of high school, you competed in the Olympic trials. Is that true? Yeah. What was that like? Especially going as never throwing your freshman year of high school to four years later, you're with the best of the best in the country. Yeah, it was quite a whirlwind. Uh, and I'll tell you the whole story. I was at a basketball camp as like a counselor for my high school team. So I hadn't qualified for the trials. And this was like the same week as the trials, this camp. And so we're in eastern Washington. Um, It's like six hours away from my house. My mom calls me and she says they lowered the standard for the Olympic trials. Like I worked with a guy named Gary Redaway in Portland a couple times. And he had called my mom when USATF like announced that um, this was a thing. Because like you didn't even register... Like, maybe registered online for Olympic trials in 2004 to compete. But, like, I actually doubt that that was the case. Like, I'm pretty sure you had to call and be like, hey, this is what I've thrown (laughs) and this is where I threw it and let me in. So we wouldn't have known unless Gary called my mom. So she calls me. The meet was, like, two days later. So my coach drove me six hours home, like my high school basketball coach, with my friend that was there with me. To get to my house, uh, the next morning, my mom and I left to drive to Sacramento. So we drove all day, or we might have even left that night. And so we're like, we spent the night in Southern Oregon, and then we drove the rest of the way to Sacramento from Southern Oregon, took a nap like that day, and then competed in the qualifying round that evening, like that afternoon. Just to get me, like, the experience of competing at the Olympic trials, I got, like, third to last. (laughs) And then we, like, drove home the next day. Like, we didn't even stick around and watch the final. Um, So I barely remember it, right? Like, I don't even... I didn't really get the full experience. But, like, for me, the most powerful part of that was my mom taking me there. Like, making that happen for me and getting me a little taste of Olympic trials for the future. Well, yeah, I'm not surprised you didn't remember all of it because the way that developed was like two days ago you were at a basketball camp and now you're sleeping in Southern Oregon and then ending up in Sacramento. So, I mean, that's just like, yeah, I guess I had read about it, but I did not imagine that's how it went. It was nuts. And 
uh, growing up in Washington, like the only indoor training that I'd ever really done was to actually throw basketballs inside when it was like raining too much to be outside yeah. in Washington. So that's what I did. Like when the day that I got the call that I was going to be going, cause I hadn't trained for javelin for like three weeks at least like since high school sports probably even more than that like a long time because I didn't qualify right and I that evening like after my mom called me I was like I guess I better throw these basketballs around and so (laughs) my friend Anna that was a counselor with me like was throwing them back to me and um trying to get me ready for my first Olympic trials that's awesome so you were obviously happy with your choice of Purdue what was your I guess you could go over it quickly or in depth, whatever you feel more comfortable with. Uh, what what was your our college career like at Purdue? There were like so many more positives than negatives at Purdue, um, and the really only negative for me was my back injury in two thousand seven. But I had like utterly failed at NCAA championships my freshman and sophomore years. Um, when I was in college a million years ago, you took like 24 people, maybe more than that to NCAAs. It wasn't like, it wasn't two rounds in separate places. They did it like Olympic trials where there's qualifying one day and then two days later, the final. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So everybody was there and then half the field didn't get to compete on the second day. And that was me, both freshman and sophomore year. I think I was 13th freshman year, and then I was awful sophomore year. Um, but 2006 was my sophomore year, and that was, like, I had thrown 56-19 that year, so I qualified for some summer meets mm. that, thank goodness, were kind of my saving grace of the season. Even though I didn't throw far, I still had those experiences, and that spurred me on to having Olympic dreams. Like, I feel like if I had totally failed sophomore year and not had the encouragement of junior USA teams, I might have had a totally different outcome after my back injury. But 2006, those teams, like, one of them um, is where I met Russ and where I really bonded with Dana. And uh, just a fabulous Dominican Republic beach resort super fun (laughs) teammates uh NACAC under 23 experience like phenomenal people two of them Adam Keel and Brittany Henry were part of our wedding party like that was how fun that team was um so then like I had an L5 stress fracture my uh sophomore or sorry junior year Right before the outdoor season started, that got diagnosed. So I was medical redshirted, like, immediately. And the biggest negative about that, like, I had great medical. I had great people to, like, be around on my team. But I had never been just stripped of my athletic ability. Right. So that was really awful, and I did not handle it very well. It was the summer or the semester that I turned 21 as well and just not very uh, self-promoting, <laughs> self-care like decisions were made, uh, but I got through it. And eventually when I tore my ACL a lot of time later, I could look back on that experience and be like, hey, you need something else in your life to get through this injury in a healthy way. So, yeah. Right. But, like, those team experiences, I was on a Pan Am junior team in 05 as well, so I had a couple of 
things that made me able to dream about the Olympics still through that back injury. Uh, my teammate, Lindsay Blaine, that I mentioned, was my training partner, only a year older than me, won NCAA championships in 2007. Oh, wow. While I was injured. Yeah. And that was amazing to like, then she was competing uh, post-collegiately in 2007-08, like after to the, that Olympic trials. So to have somebody around that then objectively was better than me, right, was super fun and motivating for both of us. Um, yeah, so 0809 were kind of dreams <laughs> as far as results are concerned. And to be able to take uh, my coach, Roddy Zuderwick, he was a hurdler and a multi for Australia. And in 2000, he got injured right before the Olympics, and he said at some point during my college career that watching the Sydney Olympics was one of the hardest things he'd ever done. Mm-hmm. And to be able to like produce set him to Beijing and kind of provide a positive Olympic experience for him was really really cool. So, because two thousand eight Beijing then was your first Olympics, I'm guessing then right if I have the timeline correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit then? Um, sure. I, uh, I, yeah, again, a whirlwind, but Russ, uh, my now husband, I don't know if that's clear. Um, he got fifth at the trials in the shot that year and to the likes of Christian Cantwell, Reese Hoffa, Adam Nelson, uh, Dan Taylor, like he was fifth after those incredible yeah. names. Like he did amazing in his first post-collegiate year as well. So um, he was bummed to not make the team, but he'd had a really good showing at that Olympics. And then he worked with my parents to surprise me come to the Olympic Games. Because we were That's like, awesome. how many times is this going to happen? Like, you don't know the future. But now he's been to two of my three Olympic Games. Um, so to have him there was super cool. My parents were there. That's the only Olympics that uh, my brother has been to. And actually, my parents bought their tickets, airline and competition, before I competed at Olympic trials. So, like, when I officially made the team, they were like, we're coming too! (laughs) (laughs) And I have a picture, like, from um, a friend of, like, my family right after they told me that they'd already bought tickets um, for the three of them. And so that was really, really neat. Like I look at that picture all the time. I'm like, that's what this is about. You know, that pure joy. Like, I can't believe that you believed in me that much or like you, you actually want to be there. so bad. Yeah, that's absolutely awesome. That's the only type of only support uh, a family could give there. Um, now they're not shy about being like, Kara, we've bought our tickets. Like you better (laughs) do your job. And it's really (laughs) funny. Um, but yeah, I had thrown 61.56 at Big Tens in 2008, and then the closest I'd ever been to that mark was, uh, 56 meters, like, prior to that. Oh, wow. Like, my sophomore year, like, it was a five-meter PR to throw the Olympic standard. So going to trials, I was only, I was one of two women that had the standard, which was, a you know, confidence boost, but... I also knew that there was this giant gap in my performance resume that I desperately wanted to fill because I've never been the most consistent thrower, but like, I just, I really, really wanted that in my life. And 
Therefore, like, I had, I think, four 58-meter throws in the Olympic trials final. And I threw 58-44 to win. And at the time, that was an Olympic trials record, which has been broken since. But, like, that was a really cool affirmation of my ability. You know, not at the level you need to be competitive going into the Olympics, but a big boost for me going into the Olympic Games. Well, yeah, that's about as good as you can get for filling that gap between uh, 56 and 61. So, yeah, definitely, definitely good confidence boost there. Yeah, but then not surprising that I, like, again, totally failed at the Olympics (laughs) distance-wise because I'd never competed that late in the season. Um, I know that physically, like, my coach had prepared me. Um, There were just a lot of other awesome things about Beijing uh, besides the performance, and I was 22, um, so, you know... Maria Bakumova did that, but we know now that there are other reasons why. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I got to walk in opening ceremonies, and it was like the Beijing opening ceremonies, which were insane. Plus, yeah. uh, Lopez Lemong was the flag bearer, so when your sport has the flag bearer, they you get to be in the front of the delegation. So Jillian Camarena Williams and I were in like the first and second row, and they're like oh, wow. pictures now larger than life size like on the walls of the olympic training center and i can look like at us right at the front of that group of people yeah that's something you can't replace you know and that's one thing i wanted to say too is like in 2008 if you graduated high school 2004 i mean yeah you're still basically a college athlete so young at 22 to be at the olympics like yeah i mean obviously you want to do well but it's not necessarily about that that's like you were on other teams but the olympics is the biggest stage in the world so being there has got to be or had to have been just a huge shock, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I haven't talked about very much is that uh, Barbara Spitakova was in my flight at Beijing. And then, like, sitting in the stands two days later, I was like, Barbara's going to win on her last throw. Like, I was with my coach and Russ, and I was like, she's got this. Like, I don't even know Barbara. But during qualifying, um, I... She had, like, looked at me. She auto-qualified on her first throw, and she, I was like, good job. Like, I, I had the bravery <laughs> to say something. And yeah. she said, oh, thank you. I, I get so nervous, you know. And she, that was, like, our very first interaction. And now I am so amazed to say that she's my friend. Like, she's my good friend in the Javelin internationally. And, like, sometimes I think about that and then, like, predicting that my future friend Barbara was going to win the Olympics and it actually happening was, like, such a cool future predictor kind of situation. Right. I loved it. Yeah. Was that – did you graduate college in 2008 or 2009 then? Oh, nine, yeah. So that – after – or the summer of 09, was that then your first season as, like, a professional javelin thrower? We talked a little bit off air. You are like, that's kind of a different word to describe it, I guess, but, like – yeah, what was that like, I guess, going post-collegiately and being one of the top people, being already being an Olympian and now becoming a professional? Yeah, I was really happy to go back to the collegiate cocoon after the Olympics, actually. And I think that was really important for me as far as the transition to being a professional javelin thrower, um, quote-unquote. And my coach, Rodney Zuderick, was a big part of that, like the fact that he's an international person and he just like had a better idea of world athletics mm-hmm. than maybe another collegiate coach would have was super helpful because I remember having so much time off after I got home from Beijing because like I got home and I was late for classes. 
Like I'd missed a week of school. Right. Coming back from the Olympics. And I didn't, I don't think, um, have any organized practice for like another month at least. Like he was very aware of like keeping me on an international schedule more than the collegiate schedule. And maybe the fact that like our team wasn't super strong overall made that easier. Like he could help me focus on like my career. I still did my job at big tens and I did the best I could at NCAAs, even though I never won, but to have somebody that was my advocate for my future career, um, versus my like insulated collegiate career, I think was invaluable. I couldn't have had a better college experience to prepare me for a post-collegiate experience. Right. And obviously I'm not at that level and not many people are, but I can imagine how many coaches would not see you in the same way as like, I want to prepare her for what she's going to do after. Like when you have someone that's at that level, you're going to just be like, I want to get as much out of this person as I can naturally, I guess, as a college coach would, but having a coach ready to develop you like that's got to be just amazing or really lucky because I can't imagine many other people are like that. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely think that's changed. Like, I don't know that that would be possible today because of the pressure that all those NCAA coaches are under and all the changes that happen that seem to happen every couple years, like in the entire structure of the NCAA. So, right. Yeah. Right. Right place, right time, right person. And here I still am, you know, and I still have a great relationship with him too. So, um, yeah. And I had met Mike Hazel, uh, and Ty Savan at the Olympics in Beijing briefly. So, Russ and I went on spring break to Chula Vista my senior year in 2009 and then um, moved there at the end of the summer of 09. So that was like where I started my post-collegiate professional career. Okay. What, what is the process like of getting into Chula Vista? Is it an invite thing they reach out to you or like is there a qualification? I'm not really sure how that is. Olympic training centers, as of like the USO PC's policies, are supposed to be like top 10% performance wise in the country per like event or per sport. So that's like the kind of baseline residency requirement. At the time, it felt like invite only. And it still okay. operates that way fairly often. But most of the people that are getting invited are already meeting that performance requirement anyway. So it has right. a lot to do with the coaching staff that's on site and who maybe that person wants to work with. So my in was Mike was going to be my training partner um, and Ty was the coach in Chula Vista. Okay. what, Where and what was your first meet as a professional thrower like after you were uh, – or once you started your post-collegiate career? I actually, I'd never talk about this and I loved it. Um, I made a decision after being terrible at world championships in 2009. So I had PR'd um, massively, like one of the most inconsistent series of my entire careers at USA's in 09. Like my first meet all on my own, like Purdue didn't send me. Um, I wore like an outfit that I'd bought at Dick's Sporting Goods like (laughs) two days before um, and through sixty three ninety five on my fifth throw uh, to Dang. win my second national championship, which was really fun. But then I went to Berlin for Worlds in 09 and was awful again. Like just mentally at those big meets, like I had struggled for a really long time. 
Uh, and then I had an opportunity to go to Asia, to Kawasaki, Japan for a small meet, and um, Daegu, South Korea that September. So the end of the very, very end of my first professional season. And it felt important to me to go and do some kind of redemption work on this first post-collegiate season because I'd been so bad at world championships. Um, and I won the Kawasaki meet. I like I do not remember what I threw, but I won and I won a Nishi Javelin and I got to bring it home. And I didn't do as well in Daegu, but Mike Hazel was there competing. So that was fun to like be at the same meet as my new training partner. Mm-hmm. And it was just this very mini like tour that told me you can do this. Like you can travel internationally alone and succeed um, and you're making the right choice like to keep moving forward. Did you pick those meets or did someone schedule them for you? Um, an agent scheduled them for me. Okay. So you had an agent and we were talking a little bit about like your first uh, sponsorship or deal. What is that like for someone in track? Because obviously a lot of people are familiar with it for the major sports, I guess, in the United States, like football, basketball, baseball. Well, what is it like for a javelin thrower now getting sponsorships? How does that process happen? At the time, uh, Russ, or Russ graduated the year before I did, so he was working with a guy. Um, yeah, so Tony Mangeras was his name. I don't know if he's still an agent. And then Jeff Hartwig, uh, former pole vaulter. Now he works for Paul Doyle, another agent. But Jeff was like just starting his manager career after retiring from the vault, like, basically that same year. Like, he was on the Berlin 2009 World Championships team. Oh, wow. And this was, like, 2009. So I got into um, these competitions, like, via those people and your agent. However you develop that relationship, whether you are friends with other people in your event group or you're friends with people from your school that are in different event groups and they've attracted agents after they graduated, but they're still training at your school, like you just start a relationship with somebody that has relationships with meet directors and potential sponsors. Okay. And then they negotiate the contract for you or your entry into the competitions and they take a percentage of the contract money or the prize money if you win it. Okay. For that work. That is very interesting. I Definitely would have not guessed that. (laughs) And it can look really different. Sometimes it's like numbers in an email that's not legal language and you have to just trust that that's what the contract is going to say. Other times a company is okay with paying for the legal language to get drafted and sent to you for you to look over. For me, that is more comfortable because it's official business. For sure. But it's just, it's a very strange wishy-washy world of a sport if you're talking about like other sports that have clear-cut rules around representation and contracts right so you said you were with asics before you're not with them anymore but what are your current sponsorships as of today i'm kind of speeding up the interview not we don't have to finish i'm going or jumping ahead i guess but who are you working with now uh my two main sponsors are the new york athletic club a prestigious athletic club in New York City uh, and on Long Island that has had a hand in track and field for just a super long time. So that happened right after Nationals last year. 
And I just love, you know, being able to rub elbows with other greats of the sport and of other sports for a long time. My friend uh, Adeline Gray is from here, Colorado Springs. That's where we met. But she's a five-time world champion in wrestling. Oh, wow. She's amazing. And she's been an NYAC athlete for a while. So it's just really fun to be a part of that prestigious group. Uh, And then Honey Stinger is my snack sponsor. They're a Colorado company that uses, like, ethically sourced honey to sweeten all of their products and just delicious, delicious snacks. Yeah, I'm I'm not sponsored by them, but they have it in our weight room at school sometimes, and I'm definitely a big fan as well. So I, I'd seen it on your Instagram, and I wasn't sure, but I figured that it had to be a sponsorship. But it is also just very good uh, on its own. So without being paid, I also endorse the product. I'll tell them. <laughs> yeah, maybe in the future. We'll see about that. <laughs> what is the day? Or I guess I'll go back to this. How did you get connected with Dana? Because you said you met her back in the Dominican Republic a long time ago, but that's now your current coach. How long have you guys been working together and how did that work? Because she's not much older than you, is she? No, she's not. So she graduated from the Air Force Academy in 2006. That was her. Um, she won NCAAs 05 and 06. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. She's amazing. She's five foot two. I've seen pictures of you guys together, and I've, I've also read her bio. It's like five two, fifty nine 59-meter throw. I'm like, that is beyond impressive. She's amazing. Um, the first time I ever met her, uh, we were both at 04 Olympic trials. We figured that out last year, but we didn't meet then. We say that's when our friendship started, but we didn't actually like meet each other until the next year. Uh, we My freshman year, 05... So the year of her first NCAA championship, we both threw at a meet at Cal Berkeley on my birthday. <laughs> and I PR'd, I think I threw 52, like 07 or something. It was like a big PR for me. I'd started the year at 50 meters, um, but I threw 52 that day and she won the meet at like 55 mid, 56. So from that day forward, like she was one of my heroes of the javelin. And then she went on to win uh, NCs. She threw her PR 5992 at the Air Force Academy. Okay. Which is like 7,200 feet elevation. And it's not a golf ball. Like the javelin needs the support of the air. Right. So she gets really mad sometimes when she thinks about how close to 200 feet she threw. And like she wanted to throw 60 meters. Like she just, it's really funny to hear her talk about it, but if she had been somewhere else, like maybe it would have been a 60 meter throw. Like if she had yeah. that elevation. Yeah. Um, she's been my coach since the fall of 2017 is when she agreed to coach me. She separated from the military that summer. So she became a civilian after like 18 years, I think in the air force. Um, and then was, taking the javelin coaching job at the academy like immediately so the 2017 season I it just became really clear after I started the year at 6480 and then was very frustrated with like technique and just the training that I was getting and all that stuff like I needed a new coach like a new training and coaching situation Mm -hmm. Um, and Jamie Myers has been my strength coach for 10 years Like, he's the coach that has been my coach for the longest of any sport I've ever played. And I think that's super cool because he's also one of my really good friends. Um, So I was talking to him after that season, and I had, like, maybe three options that I'd come up with 
on how to move forward. And I didn't want Dana to have more of a burden with me than she was already going to have moving into an NCAA like coaching position after kind of being out of the sport for a while. She's also the strength coach for the entire team. The entire team, not just her group? Yeah. Wow. And now, like, as of this year, she's the overall throws coach. So for two seasons, she was just the javelin coach and the strength coach for the team. And now she's coaching shot disc camera as well. Plus strength for the whole team. It's crazy. Yeah, that's a huge workload. Yeah. And I mean, at this moment, March 17th, 2020, I am her only active athlete, which I'm happy to do for her. Like, I'm thrilled that we still get to work together. And I think that's just mental health good for both of us. But yeah. For sure. Um, so when I told Jamie that Dana was one of my options, uh, he was like, that sounds perfect. Like, go ask her. And it took her a couple months to agree to coach me. Really? Because I think she was just trying to see what her new normal was going to be. And I totally understood that. But I had time to wait as well. Like, I was like, <laughs> you will say yes eventually. <laughs> and at the end of 2018, like our first season working together um I've just I've known her for so long and she was in 2006 in the Dominican Republic she and Brittany my eventual maid of honor like pushed Russ and I together oh really yes like she was like my wing woman (laughs) for my future husband and then through everything that she's been through personally in the last 15 years as well like we've just been there for each other so to move into a coaching relationship too, like we just weave so seamlessly between friend and coach throughout practice mm-hmm. and it makes traveling together so much fun. So my former coach had never been to a Diamond League final with me. And okay. she came to Zurich with me in 2018 and I just, after I threw 64-75 to get third and I turned around and like saw her beaming face like tears are just <laughs> cascading down my cheeks like to feel that support was so unbelievable it's awesome yeah that sounds like a theme from a lot of your interview is just the relationship you've been able to build through this has just been outstanding I mean all the way back in 2006 who would have figured this would be your current coach setting you up with your current husband I mean that's just layers and layers of relationships that Javelin's helped you build it's insane yeah what is a day in the life like of a professional javelin thrower? Because within the United States, I don't know how many there even are. Like, I was thinking earlier, like, oh, she's probably, like, one of ten. I'm, like, fully professional throwers. Like, that might not even be ten. So, like, how many – or what is a day in your life like? Hmm. Well, today, I slept in pretty good. Got up at, like, <laughs> 8.15. Um... I like to eat a good breakfast, and then I made an Instagram post because that's important as an athlete, even though I kind of hate it, uh, the requirement. That's probably the evolution of social media throughout my career, that it's not, like, totally natural to me. Yeah. But it feels important. Um, And then I wrote an email because I'm going to write some warm-ups for somebody that asked me to do that yesterday, so I need some background information on that. Then I went to Lyft. I had a meeting, a phone meeting, a virtual meeting for an hour. And then I got some treatment on my neck. And then I came home and walked my dog. Um, Another day might look like, again, sleep in, kind of. Uh, Sleep's super important to me. 
that was like the major change from college to professional, I feel. Um, I'll go and throw with Dana, like warmed up by 10. I'm there till like noon and then I go to lunch and I journal while I eat lunch, like at Qdoba or Noodles and Company. And then <laughs> I go to 24 hour fitness usually when it's open and swim laps after I throw to like balance my body back out. So I'll do some core foam rolling stuff and then swim. Um, and then again, come home, walk the dog, maybe blog. I haven't done that enough lately. Um, but I also have temporary jobs, like a consulting position with a new, uh, platform on social media and then a temporary metadata logging job with the USOPC. So I can kind of split my days up however I want to focus on my main job of being a javelin thrower, but also the other stuff that I have available. Sometimes I also have like VIP tours at the Colorado Springs Olympic Training Center um, for corporate groups and stuff like that. Okay. So I'll fit that in somewhere. That's a pretty diverse day. You got it coming from all angles. The metadata to swimming to everything like that. So it's uh, never definitely the gives... same ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think living that way, because you talk about professional throwers and that can kind of look however you want it to. I think the state of our sport, if you're making any money as a thrower, like from throwing the javelin, you're a professional thrower. For sure. If you're making teams, you're a professional thrower, even if you're not making money from being on teams. Like if that's you just have to you have to include more people for it to become a legitimate thing I don't think that you can only consider you know Ryan Krauser a professional thrower like for making a a real living off throwing the chocolate I don't know that that's that's it's helpful to everybody else right um and would I like to see everyone get paid for throwing sure uh I also enjoy having other stuff to do right because like i said when i tore my acl like i applied for a grad school program instead of going crazy (laughs) during that recovery (laughs) process and i like the opportunity to do other things besides throwing the javelin like it just makes my javelin throwing better i like to put all my eggs in all my baskets versus only focusing on one thing. Cause what happens if that thing doesn't go well, it's harder to like continue beating your head against a wall to make it go well versus if you can do other stuff in the meantime and trust that that javelin throwing basket will be there when you're healthy and ready to go back to it. Right. And I think that's a message that can go to even people that are not professionals, especially at the college level. I think it's easy to get swallowed up in, just like I'm a college athlete or especially the division one level people are just that's like their only identity and I think that's something that I've seen different or differentiate in my life over the past year is like I found more interest outside of throwing and training and doing stuff like that so I think that's a good message for people that aren't professionals or even high schoolers like I was just always someone that's super passionate about a sport but like that can always obviously that's a good thing but it can always go the wrong way too like what if it's not going well and it's just like you have no other outlet for your days or your time than just what you're doing so yeah I think compartmentalizing is a skill that not enough people talk about like being able to go over here and succeed and then come back to this and succeed in it as well that's something that I feel like I've always been really good at uh and 
the one thing that I kind of forget about at those big giant meets when now it's time to only focus on this. Um, whereas the past two years, being able to like be with my friend coach Dana at the big meets and kind of relax, um, going into them is what makes me actually successful. Right. Yeah. Versus buckling down and like, now it's time to get serious. No, like (laughs) just be yourself and it's going to be fine. Is that what I was going to ask? What advice would you give to throwers who are competing in big meets? But I think you just hit on it a little bit. I don't know if you want to add anything to that just for people that I guess this year maybe don't have the big meets, unfortunately, but going forward, uh, what would be some advice you'd give? Yeah. If you're not talking about big meets, like I kind of, kind of touched on it in the beginning, what, what is it about? Like, is it about being the best that you can be? Or is it about like the glory of first place at conference or being on the national team or whatever? And for me, especially after transitioning to um, Jamie and Dana being my coaches, like, it's just, it's very fun to be in that environment, like that little team and be super proud of whatever I'm putting out as like our work together, wherever that is, at whatever meet that is. Um, right. But going into big meets, like it, it really is important to have fun doing what you're doing because that's what it's about. And you can, you can have fun and also throw super far. Um, yeah. yeah. And just learning how to relax took a long time. I like 2019 was kind of a, a little like microcosm of maybe my entire career. Like I, I spent the beginning part of it in a really great community, the middle, I was like by myself and too serious and it didn't go well. And then I had to like admit that I needed help from my coaches, um, a little bit of change through communication and then focus on just having a great time with my friends and in Lima at Pan Am's, uh, in Belarus at the match and at worlds, like it super worked for me. So just having a great time and letting, letting the, the work that you've done shine. Right. It, I think that looks different for a lot of people, but for me, it's like playing cards or games or laughing a lot with my friend, and teammate Ari in our room. Um, yeah, and just having a great time. Um, and I think, yeah, I think you hit on a lot of good things there. That one thing, too, is like, it's not, I've just kind of been preaching the message. Obviously, I won't, I'm as competitive as anybody, and I always want first place. But it's not, one, always about first place. But sometimes there's things out of your control, like with your husband, Russ, at that uh, trials when he got fifth. And he had to face, like, four just outstanding throwers it's yeah exactly it's like what can you really do like he gave it his best and just because he got fifth doesn't mean he failed like there were things outside of his control that he really couldn't do and he did everything to the best of his ability so I'm sure yeah it was probably frustrating but looking back on it I mean what else could you have done there so I think that's something I'm trying to cover with the podcast too is like not I don't want everyone to get into the sport feeling like they have to be a gold medalist like there's just ways to continue it that it's not useless to continue after college just because you're not one of the top people like if you truly enjoy it there's no reason you have to stop I love that and I've I've heard that a lot on your other episodes and 100% agree and I think maybe that involvement from people that aren't necessarily the top echelon of the sport can help boost the sport in general like if you stick around and you're involved and you're aware of like what results are because you're just excited to be a part of the community and you're participating in it still 
Um, I think that could go a really long way as far as like excitement at meets for other people to maybe get standards or participation in camps and stuff like that for teaching the younger generation. I love that. Yeah. And I think talking about the community too, like the community has just been, obviously now I'm even more involved with this page, but I even have that, uh, my personal page of throwing stuff that the community is, I've never met someone who's not nice. Like I'm sure there are not nice people somewhere, but like there's always been people kind, like you have a big following and verified on Instagram, first verified, uh, podcast guest, by the way. But, uh, (laughs) that's like, I mean, but you had no hesitation to reach out and just be like, yeah, just let me know when you want to do the interview. Like people have always been kind to me. And I think being involved in it has been, and just people passionate about the same thing because it's small, but the group is just like, if you're in it, you're really in it. So I think it's, yeah, the longer you can stay in that, if you really enjoy it, then the better. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited about your, your international potential as well. Like I, I just, I have so much fun traveling the world to train and throw the javelin. Like I got to spend three weeks in Offenburg in 2018 um, and that was super, super fun uh, with the one and only Johannes Better and his training partners and loved it. Um, and then I was in Bergen, Norway area with Sigrid Borga for 10 days last year, like just training at her little club on her Norwegian island. Uh, super amazing. <laughs> um, and I just I love, love, love the community and hearing stories from uh, you know, there aren't that many women that are still older than me that are still competing which is scary, but the ones that are talk about like their friends that were competing when they were 10 years younger, you know? And that's really, that's a huge indicator to me that this is like about so much more than Javelin. It's international friendships that I never saw coming. And that can happen kind of at any level. Like anyone can go to the Gen Javelin camp in Jena, Germany. Right. And learn from some of the best people in the sport. So staying involved and staying aware of how great the community can be beyond just sport is really cool. I think every guest I've had has had some type of international experience and I haven't. So I feel like I'm a little bit left out, but there's definitely time for that going forward. But that's something I I would definitely enjoy doing and hopefully get maybe a big time interview at one of them too. Yeah. I was trying to (laughs) encourage you in that vein, not make you feel bad about your (laughs) life. No, I know. I know. Uh, Definitely just a little jealous, I guess. Uh, wrapping up, I've been asking everybody this. Who is your favorite thrower of all time and why? Barbara Spitakova. Your friend? Yeah. Small flex there, your friend? Yeah. I just, like, if you look at the top lists of international, like, world athletics, women's javelin throwers, she's the world record holder, but she's also thrown over 70 meters so many more times than anyone in the world. It's insane. And to throw in 2017, 2018, 2017, she threw 68 meters, I think, in Lausanne at 35, 36. Yeah, that's pretty serious. She's amazing. And like, (laughs) I know that the world record was in 2008, but... Just looking at that list and, like, knowing how she trains, being around her, like, at practice and seeing just the detail that she puts into what she does, but also just the chill factor of how good she knows she is when she's on and going into a big meet is the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
Yeah, the fact that you were able to say like, "Hey, good job at your first uh first Olympics tour," and then now you guys are buddies, like you said, that's awesome. And just like, I can't even imagine having someone like of that level like, just be like at the same competition as me. I mean, having that is just insane. It's also really fun to kind of take note of the culture of how she approaches sport. Like, I think it's like a little bit different to be from the Czech Republic and maybe to be the world world record holder, but she's always an advocate for her fellow competitors in an event as well. And to see like that respect for people is amazing too. But um, she's taught me a lot just in her actions and the way that she like communicates with people around a meet about intensity and focus and like what it takes to perform at the level that she does. Like, I don't feel like I've implemented that knowledge in my own life, but to watch her do it and notice that she's like different from other people is really, really fun. Right. Always in a respectful way, but like just a kind of a badass way. And I love, <laughs> I love being around it and I love watching it. So yeah, that's awesome. All right, Kara, I want to shout out before you, uh, before I let you go, you have those warm ups you talked about earlier. That's on your website. If people are interested, I think I looked at it briefly the other day. If you want to talk about that quick, sure. Um, when Jamie became my full time programmer, so he's been my strength coach for ten years, but as of twenty eighteen season, um, he like will give me guidelines on how to write warm ups, like which categories of exercises I should plug in. But I am free to plug in specific exercises to those categories that meet my needs for each block. So last year I filmed, I think three blocks total. So there's like 12 different warmups um, and they're specific to my needs, I guess, but my needs are pretty much the spectrum of issues that javelin <laughs> throwers might be having. Uh, and I incorporate those into all the warmups. So there are two long ones and two short ones per block. Uh, and they're labeled really clearly. They're very cheap. I was going to raise my prices um, before coronavirus hit, but I've decided not to uh, in the hope that more people can, you know, feel that they're accessible. Right. Yeah, I was looking. I was like, yeah, these are super cheap. So <laughs> people should definitely check that out. Uh, it should not be a problem uh, to get them, but uh, I thought I should promote that quick before I let you go. Yeah, so they're all like pretty rehab based but most of them are um body weight or light resistance exercises yeah and i'm assuming like similar or similar stuff to that is on your story a lot so if people want a glimpse into what it could be you're always posting stuff like that exactly i give a lot of freebies away but these are like comprehensive the full routine with video example um great value yeah I, i agree definitely some good stuff All right, Kara. Well, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was fun. I thank you through the point podcast. I love it. I love the (laughs) javelin specific podcast. I'll come back anytime. Awesome. Recurring guest after the Olympics happen this year and you get the gold medal. (laughs) Lovely. I love that. Awesome. Cool. Thanks. Thank you, Scott. Keep you around, swear to God I'm not gonna switch on your hoe